Acts 3, 1 through chapter 4, 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze to him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them 
greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Praise God for his holy and inspired word. Fred was a homeless man who had lost his legs uh, due to gangrene and had been uh, disenfranchised, disconnected, alienated uh, from his family. He had nowhere to live, and he he was in a wheelchair all the time, and uh, he frequented every day, I mean every day, the median of Route 2 right around Severna Park, near where I used to live. Now, Route 2 is a thoroughfare between Baltimore and Annapolis. There's public transportation on Route 2, and thousands upon thousands of people commute down and up Route 2 to get to Baltimore or Annapolis or to D.C., whatever it may be. So thousands of people, I guarantee you, thousands upon thousands of people who live in that part of the state would recognize Fred, the homeless man, more than they would recognize most of their locally elected leaders. Because they saw him every day. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, you see that person every day or once a week. You, you, you know who they are because they, they frequent the same spots. So I don't know what this man's name is in Acts chapter 3. Maybe it was Fred. Uh, but he kind of had a routine, it seems. You know, he... He every day parked himself. Well, he couldn't park himself. He must have had friends to lift him and carry him. But he, he, he put himself right at the entrance of the, the beautiful gate into the temple, right? There is all this traffic flow every day, all day, as people are going in to pray, as people are going into the temple to bring offerings. There's this guy, you know, this guy. It says he was lame from birth, whatever it was, it was congenital. But he couldn't walk from birth. And later on, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us that the guy was over 40 years old. Everybody in Jerusalem that frequents the temple knows who this guy is. And they walk in, and there he is every day, every day, every day. The guy's just lying there, asking for help, asking for alms, hoping somebody that's going into worship will have mercy on him and throw him a couple of coins. And uh, there must be a monotony to that type of laboring every day. Uh, Because Peter and John, as they're walking into the temple, they had to get his attention, Luke tells us in the passage. They had to say, look at us. And so he does. And and I can imagine he must have looked down again in discouragement when Peter said to him, we don't have any money. But you bet he looked up when Peter said the words to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. And, and, and Luke describes this progression of actions as Peter reaches out his hand to help the man stand up. And the man gains sense of his balance and then starts to walk and then starts leaping and praising God all throughout the temple courts so that everybody who had seen this guy day after day after day after day They see him jumping and praising God and running around the place. Can you imagine? 
what it would be like to experience that. And all these people in the temple, they rush over to Peter and to John and to the group of believers that had been gathering frequently, apparently, in a place of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. And all the Jews looked in wonder and amazement at these two uneducated fishermen from Galilee, these backcountry guys, and they just looked at these two guys and gawked at them in amazement. Now, I think what is far more noteworthy is to examine what Peter and John said, not what they did. Let's take a look at what they said. The early church, I have to say this first, the early church, because we're looking at the book of Acts to understand what the spirit of God's priorities are. In bringing life and renewal to individuals and families and communities. As we are here as a new church in a community. The early church emphasized a Christ-centered faith. And this is, a, this is a great example of it. Early on in the book of Acts, while the church was in its infancy. Peter and John take no credit for this miracle, do they? In verse 12, they say... To all the Jews, why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? Just to focus on those two words, power and piety. They're saying it wasn't our power that made him walk. They had abilities. They had gifts. They had the office of apostle. No Christian since then could say that they had that type of a role in the church. But those 12 guys, they had the office of apostleship, but they're saying it's not our power that made the man walk. Now, let's talk about their piety because they use the word piety. Um, Piety, it means godliness, holiness, uh, good religion, okay, moral excellence, moral exemplary behavior. They had been taught by Jesus himself. Jesus invested in these men for over three years. Of their lives. And unlike you. And unlike I. Unlike me. And any Christian leader since then. They had been personally. Face to face. Discipled by. Trained by. And taught by. Jesus Christ. But they're saying. It's not our morality. It's not our godliness. It's not our excellent behavior. It's not our religion. That's made this man well. They attribute the miracle to. What do they say? Faith in Jesus. Look at verse 16. They say. And his name. By faith in his name has made this man strong. Was it Peter and John's faith that healed the lame man? Was it the faith of the lame man that healed the lame man? I say yes. I think it's both. The name of Jesus was spoken by Peter and John. And so you see in the apostles a faith not trusting in themselves, their big ideas, their reputation, their power and abilities, but trusting in the name of their Lord Jesus. But what else? The name of Jesus was heard, wasn't it? It It's not only spoken, it was heard by a man, I would like to think, had enough faith that when he heard the name of Jesus, he responded to it in his soul. This guy is in front of the temple every day. And it says that everybody knew who he was. 
Jesus frequented the temple for a while. I think it's reasonable to suggest that he had heard of Jesus' name before. Maybe he had seen Jesus. How many people in the Gospels were healed by Jesus? And they heard these words, your faith has made you well. The name of Jesus was spoken and the name of Jesus was heard in that moment. And when God moves, it is often both the faith of those who are proclaiming the truth of his son, Jesus, and those who are receiving the truth as well. Um, so I see it from both perspectives. Now, it's really critical to observe how the early church responded to its own growth. Because what happens at the end? Uh, the, the religious authorities are ticked. They show up and uh, they throw Peter and John in prison for healing somebody. Um, but it says, nonetheless, that 5,000, uh, the number of men at that moment was counted at 5,000. So they're not even counting women and children. There, there must have been thousands and thousands of people that were now attaching themselves to this group of believers and to the apostles, the first church, the first church community. They're expanding. They're growing. Even though their leaders are being thrown in prison, they're growing. But how does the early church respond to its own growth? Well, the church and its leaders, they didn't attribute what was happening to human intervention. They didn't credit personality, the, the reputation of the apostles or their abilities or their intelligence or their words or eloquence. Because you see Peter, the fisherman, preaching quite capably here. And in other places, no, no, they, 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 they didn't attribute their growth to their reputation as a group within the community. Although it tells us in Acts chapter 2 that their reputation was excellent, that they had favor with all the people. And yet they don't attribute their growth to the favor of the people. The focus in the early church was always put on Jesus or it was always put back on Jesus Again and again and again. In this spirit, the spirit of Christ-centered faith and endeavor, it continued years after that, decades after that, because many, many years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Corinth. Now, these were a bunch of people uh, who were very proud because they were culturally sophisticated and intelligent and resourceful um, and even some of them were wealthy, uh, and they were impressed by their own spiritual gifts. And Paul was trying to humble them. And, and he said, don't, don't be impressed by all of that stuff. And he said this to them, Jews demand signs, and Greek seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. And the wisdom of God. Okay. The early Christians said, you know, it may look foolish to the world and it may not be what people want, but we are focusing on this man named Jesus. You may be impressed by what you see. Don't be impressed with us. The focus is on Jesus. The spotlight is on him. The early church was established with a God-centered focus. And that has to be our focus as a church if we're going to remain true to what Christianity actually is, what it's intended to be. 
for us as individual believers, um, for us as a church community, to be a God-centered people. And if you're not a Christian, but you're slowly discovering what Christianity is, you may, maybe you've seen a lot of selfish, self-centered Christians. And look, I confess, we can be that way. We're broken people. Um, but the point of Christianity is for the focus, the attention, uh, the admiration to be on Jesus. And as a church, we have been emphasizing uh, the theme of receiving living water from Jesus Christ. You've probably seen that slogan, living water in Westminster on everything we have. (laughs) Business cards, invitations, brochures, uh, projections, our website, it's everywhere. Living water in Westminster. Living water, it's a theme in the Bible, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Living water, it was a sign, it was a symbol, it was a picture of uh, renewal, restoration, and eternal life that comes from God alone and that he offers people. And so Jesus actually offered people, while he was teaching, he offered people living water. He offered it to a Samaritan woman, um, a shady woman with a reputation. He offered this living water to her. Uh, He offered living water to all the people in Jerusalem uh, during a big feast in John chapter 7. You know, if you trust in me, if you focus on me, streams of living water will flow out of you. So as a a new church, we've been focusing on the idea, uh, picture this, picture the image of all of us drinking together from one well of living water. And that well is not us, it's Jesus. We're, we're drinking from, we're receiving what Jesus has to offer, who he is, what he's done, and what he said. And now we're inviting our community and our neighbors to drink, to come to the well with us and to drink. We don't generate the living water. Actually, there's a place in the Old Testament that says, when, when you rely on yourselves, uh, the water you generate is like nasty, uh, stagnant cistern water. The prophet Jeremiah said, but uh, we don't have that water. Jesus has the water. And as we drink of it, we invite others to come along and drink as well. Jesus is the one who refreshes people and renews people as we point them to him. But to stay true to that, then we have to de-emphasize ourselves and re-emphasize him. John the Baptist put it perfectly. In John chapter 3, people are asking John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that was supposed to come? And John kept saying, no, I'm not the Christ. It's not me. And at one point, John said this, he must increase. I must decrease. And that's a beautiful idea. John was saying, all of my work all of my teaching and and all of my service, I'm just trying to pave the way for Jesus. My goal in all of this is to get out of the way in order to make him visible, in order to make him known so that people will not pay attention to me, but pay attention to him. So think about that practically. And, And we can't get into all of our lifestyles and vocations, but I know we've got educators in the room. For an example, right? Some people are teachers and some are administrators. If you're an educator and you're a Christian, you have the opportunity to let your students see more of Jesus and less of you in how you teach, 
in how you counsel, in how you administrate, in how you encourage? Or is what you really want to see them admiring you? Because that's what makes you feel special and like you're accomplishing something. When they admire you, when they see you and how much you care about them and love you, it makes you feel so good. But do they see Jesus? Do they see more of Jesus and less of you? Many of us are parents. Uh, We have an opportunity as Christians uh, to work in our homes, to live in our homes in such a way that our children see more of Jesus and less of us. Or is it that we really want our children to honor and respect and obey us as opposed to God? Where do we want the focus to be? We live in a society, have you seen this? We live in a, in a society that tells us from when we're five years old and we watch um, cartoons and uh, uh, children's programs on public television uh, up until uh, we are being groomed to go to college uh, and, and preparing uh, to get our jobs and take our vacations and, and find life mates, uh, we are told by our culture, promote yourself in order to experience greatness, right? But the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says, get out of the way so that people can experience God's greatness. And that's what we've been designed to truly do. God does wonderful things as Jesus' name is highlighted. As attention is drawn to his son. Um, When attention is just drawn to me, And just drawn to you, uh, God isn't honored and we're really not helping people. We're really not helping one another. It doesn't matter how admirable you may seem and how much they may want to emulate you. Unless you're pointing people to the one who created both them and you, you're really not helping them. Okay? They're most helpful when you can say, hey, what you see here is, is really not because of me. It's because of the one I trust. It's because of Jesus. What we must de-emphasize, friends, de-emphasize, is trying to offer people our own living water, as though that's really what people need. Uh, We need to de-emphasize just trying to offer people ourselves, what we have and what we think, because look, uh, we are tempted to stare at one another, to gawk at people that we're impressed by. We, we, we are tempted to just attribute to people what God is really doing. God works in some profound way, and, and, and we attribute it to somebody's bright idea. And Christians do this just as much as anybody else. Oh, somebody wrote a book. Well, let's just read the book and copy what they say in the book, and we'll be as successful and fruitful as they are. Somebody has a great idea. Somebody has an effective method. Somebody has an admirable personality or an excellent reputation. And we look at them and go, ah, that's why God is working. That's why something's happening. No. It's God working through them. It's not them. But we've always done this. We've always been tempted to see what God is doing but attribute it to ourselves. In the Bible, the New Testament calls this idolatry. It's, it's, it's attributing divinity to anything and anyone but 
the true divinity to God. Romans chapter 1 says that, that what we do in our natural state as human beings is we find anything and we worship it. Lizard crawl on the ground. We'll worship the lizard. Somebody who writes a great book. We'll worship that person. We'll worship that book. And we'll quote people all the time to defend our positions. And, and um, we'll be proud of ourselves for aligning ourselves with a certain type of person or a certain type of methodology. And look down on other people who think differently and, and root for a different team. Okay? When all along, we're ignoring the truth that it is God who renews people. It is God who is working. It's not just us. It's not just other people, but we just love to gawk at one another, or we hope people will gawk at us and admire our ideas and our methods and our reputation. But it's just sin. The Bible just says it's, it's sin. It's missing the mark of why God put us here on this planet and in this community of Westminster, because it takes the focus off of the one who is generating the beauty. It takes the focus off the one who does deserve awe and admiration. The one who's actually doing it. There's an old medieval story. It's kind of like a parable. I'm not sure if it's true, and there are a lot of different versions of this story, but it goes something like this. One clergyman, once the church in Europe was big and influential, you know, and, and, and kind of had the cultural remote control, is what I like to call it, of their society. One clergyman said to another, the church can no longer say, silver and gold I have not. To which the other clergyman replied, neither can the church say, in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. And I'm not just talking about healing people from diseases and lameness. I'm talking about something, the story has a far more profound point than that. When we as a church community, or when you as an individual... Uh, put so much confidence in yourself and, 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 and find, find satisfaction and, and hope in the fact that you're well-resourced, that you're intelligent, that you've done your homework, that you have a better understanding okay, of anything. When we say, wow, we're comfortable now. We have freedom. We have property. We have money. We have education. We, we, we're well-stocked. We're not being persecuted. People aren't throwing us in prison and chopping our hands off and kicking us out of our country. Um, man, it's a wonderful thing that we don't have to say anymore, silver and gold, I have not. But wait a minute. If we're trusting in these things and making idols out of them, we are bankrupting ourselves of God's power. That's what the story's all about. You say you're rich. You say you're wealthy. You say you're well-resourced. But if you put your hopes in these things, then you are bankrupt. Because God doesn't reveal his power in people and institutions that think that they are self-sufficient and have everything that they need. Now, there is something profoundly hopeful in this, in this account, in this story. I'm not going to cover... Peter preaches an amazing sermon. I'm not going to cover the whole sermon. There's not enough time. I do want to point this out. Towards the end of his sermon, there's an amazing, an amazing ray of hope. God emphasizes, God emphasizes um, his selfless love to selfish people. 
What did Peter say to these people in, in verses 19 and 20? Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing, living water. He goes on in verse 26 to tell them, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. See, this is not a selfish God who is narcissistically just wanting people to focus on him. This is a selfless God who is giving people a second chance and a third chance. What did Peter say to them? He said to them, you killed the author of life. The creator of the universe was right here in the flesh among you and and you ignored it. You were ignorant and you killed him. Talk about an accusation. But then he turns around and he says, but but repent. Because God is offering refreshment to you. And God is offering to bless you. You know why Jesus' name is exalted? You know why there's no name in the universe that's higher than the name of Jesus? You know what the Bible says? It's because Jesus de-emphasized himself. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he's already done as a human being. The gospel says de-emphasize yourself and emphasize your creator. Well, Jesus did that. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul said that Jesus, and I quote, emptied himself. And another translation puts it this way. He made himself nothing. If that's not de-emphasization, I don't know what is. That the God of the universe would make himself nothing and become a human servant to serve us. By receiving the punishment that we deserved. By beating death to show us that we have an amazing future. So God says, so what? So you've ignored me. So you've been ignorant. So you've been touting yourself and focusing on yourself. And making people want to be impressed with yourself. And and gawking at other people and wanting to emulate them but ignoring your creator. So what? I want you to be with me. I don't care about all of that. If you would just turn away from, from these foolish ways and trust me. In your life. Okay. So you killed my son. I don't care. Turn back to me. Focus on me. And I promise you. God says. I will renew your soul so completely. That it will be as if a lame person starts to walk. And jump. And rejoice. People will look at you and say. What has happened to her? What has happened to him? We are amazed. And then you say, yeah, isn't it amazing? God did this. Jesus did this. I want him to get the spotlight. That's Christianity. That's what we see in the early church. And my prayer is that that's what we'll be, you know? Some people are attracted to power. A do-it-yourself American mentality. Uh, Some people are attracted to personality. And to exemplary behavior and to excellent morality. But only Jesus offers what's real. Don't miss him. 
Don't miss his fingerprints in your life. Don't miss his fingerprints in what's going on in your community and in the world. As a community of people, let's decrease so that he can increase. And let's pray that God's power, that God's beauty, that the renewing effects of Jesus Christ will permeate this community and this county because we're just getting out of the way and allowing Jesus to increase in our faith and in our church's identity and and in our own lives. Uh, Would you join me in prayer? Now to you, Father, you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we have asked or have imagined. According to your power that is at work within us. To you be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. In our Savior Christ Jesus' name, amen.